Amen. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We'll be reading two passages. First from Philippians chapter 4. I'll read verses uh, 10, 11, or 11, 12, and 13. These are the words of God. For I have learned in whatever state I am to be content. I know how to be abased, and I know how to abound everywhere. And in all things, I have learned both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And also from 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 6. Now godliness with contentment is great gain. Would you pray with me? Most kind and gracious Father, we thank you for the opportunity to worship you this morning. We thank you that we can gather in your presence, that we can open your word and hear it preached. Open the ears and hearts of those gathered here to receive your word this morning. Guard my mouth as I preach. And we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, it's wonderful to be back with you all. I've been in and out a good bit, as many of you know, uh, helping out with the church down in Centralia, preaching down there a couple times a month. And I wanted to share with you a quick anecdote from my time down there as an encouragement to you all. Um, Let's see, it was last week, last Sunday, we had a feast and a psalm sing after church, and um, this is one of their first psalm sings, I think. And during the psalm sing, we learned uh, Psalm 148, which many of you here know from Heaven Will Praise the Lord, and they taught it in parts, and it was really fun as a congregation that I think is not particularly used to singing in parts for them to all learn it, and at the end, they all had this just amazing expression on their face and clapping and cheering, and it was really, really fun to, to see that, um, having experienced that myself years and years and years ago, to see that life and that newness of worshiping in that way together um, was really fun. And I want to encourage you all in that as um, we're a church that is more established, but we have a lot of new people here. We have a lot of old people here that need to be revitalized too in your love and joy of singing. And so I want to encourage you in that. When you have opportunity, do come to our psalm sings so that you can learn to sing and we can learn to glorify the Lord more and more beautifully together. It's a wonderful encouragement to the body. As we turn now to our uh, text this morning, to Philippians chapter 4 and to 1 Timothy chapter 6, the topic is uh, contentment. When we look back throughout history, as we particularly do um, in this, this coming week, as we remember the Reformation, as we remember All Saints Day, we look back at what God has done through history, it is easy to marvel at the way that God used particular saints in the past, and rightly so. One thing that often characterizes these people through the centuries is the fact that they were willing to do whatever God was calling them to do. You see this in many examples of the saints. If you read biographies of missionaries or others who served the Lord and were willing to go and do whatever he called them to do at the moment. You think of figures like Augustine and Polycarp, of Wycliffe and Luther and Calvin, of Zwingli, of in the, in the more uh, modern church, um, Jonathan Edwards and Corey ten Boom. You have all of these stories through history of people that were just ready to go and do what God had called them to do at the moment. And God often calls people that we don't know about in these little tiny ways, these stories that we don't hear about. God calls people to grand or menial things, to smooth things or rocky things, to light things and to heavy things. And what characterizes, I think, all of these people through the centuries, what characterizes the Christian church, really, is joyful obedience to their Lord in the midst of those callings. 
And this virtue, I think, of joyfully being ready to obey the Lord can be summed up by a short exhortation from the Puritan Thomas Watson. Be content to be at God's disposal. Be content to be at God's disposal. One of the, I think, wonderful examples we see of this from Scripture is simply in the Lord's commission to his disciples. Just put yourself in the disciples' shoes again for a moment. Jesus has been raised from the dead. He spent some time with the disciples. Paul says that around 500 people have seen the risen Lord. There's much rejoicing in his life. But Jesus has told them that he is going to ascend to the Father. And he gathers the disciples together. And he tells them that he's about to ascend to the Father. And he says, okay, here's the plan. I want you all to wait in Jerusalem. I want you to wait until the Spirit comes upon you. And when the Spirit comes upon you, then start preaching the gospel in, Ju- in Jerusalem. And then go out into Judea, the surrounding area around Jerusalem. And then go out into Samaria. And then just go take over the world while you're at it. Just go. That's the plan. That's the game plan that God gave to his disciples. And what's crazy is that it happened. It worked and is working. Why? Because the disciples were ready to be at God's disposal. Because they were content to say, tell us, Lord, what to do, and we'll do it. And they went, and the church began. And so this, I think, is this, uh, this ability to simply joyfully obey what God has called you to do in the moment, whether it's a large thing or a small thing, whether it's a long-term thing or a short-term thing, what's at root in all of these is this virtue of contentment. And when you hear a sermon on contentment or you read a book on contentment, the temptation I think that often comes to mind for us is to say, yes, I know that the Bible talks about contentment, but you don't really know my situation. You don't really understand my circumstances. My situation is just a little different. You don't understand what I'm going through. And this may be true. I'm up here preaching to you all, and I know some of your stories, some of your circumstances, but I sure don't know all of them. How can I speak on contentment to you? Well, the fact is, Paul didn't know your situation either. Paul didn't know your circumstances either. Consider a few things about Paul's own circumstances for just a moment. Paul is writing to the Philippians, uh, and this was a church that he had helped to establish in his journeys. How easy would it have been for Paul to be discontent, to put it lightly, when God sent him to Philippi and about God's plan in sending him to Philippi. Paul is on one of his journeys and he's traveling around Asia Minor doing a circuit, preaching the gospel, planting churches, establishing the the church in Asia Minor. And he intends to go up north to pursue some more uh, opportunities up there. And, it's, and in Acts, it tells us that the Spirit tells him, or the Spirit prohibits him. No, don't go up that way. And Paul says, okay, I'll go this direction. He starts, goes into one city, and then he leaves, and he goes to head another direction, and the Spirit again prohibits him. Nope, don't go over there. The Spirit's clearly guiding Paul to a particular place. And then Paul has a vision and a dream of a call from the, church, or from the people in Macedonia across the sea, and he's going to take a ship, and he's going to sail across and go into Macedonia to the chief city of Philippi. And while he's in Philippi, having been very clearly directed there by the Holy Spirit, things go well for a time. He begins to start basically a Bible study and prayer meetings, and things are going well. And then suddenly, 
Paul and Silas, his companion, are dragged before the magistrate. There's a whole story of why. But they're dragged before the magistrate, they're beaten, and then they're thrown into a high-security prison. It says in in, uh, Acts chapter chapter 10 that, um, I'm sorry, not Acts chapter 10, I think it's 14 or 15. Paul is, it says that the, the um, officer told, the, or sorry, the magistrate told the guard to put Paul in the inner prison, not just in the prison, but in the inner prison, and then to make sure that he was securely tied up and securely chained, and it specifies that his feet were put in the stocks. He's deep in the prison. There's no getting out of this place. God, why did you send me here? I thought you wanted me to come to Philippi. Paul obediently follows the Lord's calling, but yet he ends up beaten and in prison. You can imagine that Paul may have been tempted at this point to question God's plan. Is this what you intended, Lord? But Paul does not give up hope, and he does not resign himself to these circumstances. Rather, he turns to the Lord of those circumstances. He doesn't give up in these circumstances. He doesn't resign himself to them. He turns to the Lord of these circumstances in prayer and singing. And if you know the story how God, there's a great earthquake and the prison doors are open, the chains fall off, and Paul and Silas and the other prisoners there are set free. And God uses this to establish the gospel further in Philippi. The jailer and all of his household are saved. The Lord delivers Paul. But other times, the Lord did not deliver him out of hard providences. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians 12 that he had a thorn in the flesh, which some people uh, take to be the blindness of Paul. He had some thorn in the flesh that was long-lasting, was a great trial to him, and he pleaded with the Lord three times, over and over, that God would deliver him. And God did not deliver him, but God did not abandon him as well. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. For my strength is made perfect in weakness. This is Paul. And it's this Paul that writes to the Philippians saying that he has learned in all things to be content. And not only that, but Paul is writing from yet another prison. This time in Rome. Right? Paul is in prison writing to the Philippians, I've learned to be content. These and all of Paul's other trials simply were according to God's plan. Look with me at Acts chapter 9. Acts chapter 9 tells the story of the conversion of Paul. He's on the road to Damascus and the Lord appears to him. And Paul is blinded. And then God comes to another saint in Uh, in Damascus called Ananias, and he sends Ananias to go to Paul. And the Lord tells Ananias in verse 15, Go, for he is, for Paul, is a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. For I will show him how many things he must suffer for my name's sake. God used Paul in incredible ways. And, the, and much of the New Testament that you have to read, that you have to turn to to understand who the Lord Jesus Christ is and what that means is because of Paul. God used him. But part of why God used him is because God also gave him the grace to be content to be at God's disposal. Paul's sufferings were all part of God's plan. In, in other passages, 
such as 2 Corinthians 6 and 2 Corinthians 11. Paul details a little bit of some of the other trials that he goes through, being shipwrecked, being left stoned for dead outside the city, being chased out of other cities, being beaten numerous times, being thrown in numerous prisons. Paul was chosen as a vessel to carry the grace of the gospel to the Gentiles. God chose Paul and filled Paul with grace so that he might go and spill that grace out onto the Gentiles. And through the grace of God and through his trials, Paul learned contentment to the point that his own chains remind him of the grace of God. I want to point this out briefly here. Look at Ephesians chapter 3. I've been working through the book of Ephesians with the uh, church down in Centralia, and I preached on this last week, and, and this stood out to me as I was preparing last week. Paul begins chapter 3 having declared the fact that God has brought the Gentile nations in, that there's no longer a difference between Jew and Gentile as far as their uh, inheritance in Christ. Both have full access to God because of the work that Jesus has done. And so it's because of this, Paul says in chapter 3, verse 1, he says, For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, and Paul never finishes that sentence because he gets distracted. Paul says, I'm a prisoner of Jesus Christ. Oh, and by the way, that reminds me, verse 2, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God, which was given to me for you. And he goes on to tell them again what God's grace is for them, the mystery that has been revealed, how they've been brought into fellowship with God through the blood of Jesus Christ. But Paul gets on this tangent in this letter by looking at his chains. Paul's in prison when he's writing to the Ephesians. And he says, for this reason, because of the gospel, I, the prisoner of Jesus Christ, oh yeah, that reminds me of the grace of God. Let me tell you about that again. This is Paul. Paul understood that he has been saved by God's grace and that in his grace, God has set before Paul specific works to walk in. God has set before Paul specific works to walk in. Paul will write this in Ephesians chapter 2, a passage that we're very familiar with. Paul says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But he doesn't end there. He goes on to say, For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has set before those that he saves specific things to walk in, specific things to do. Paul knew this, and he knew that this was part of the grace of God in him. And God sets those things before us with the grace then to go and do them. Paul knew, and this is why he says then in Philippians 4 verse 13, Paul knew that he could do all that God called him to through Christ who strengthens him. Unfortunately, this is you know, one of the most misquoted, taken out of context verses, particularly in the sports arenas, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me does not mean you can break the high jump record, right? Although if you did, that's still Christ working through you, right? But Paul's point here is that I can do all things, all things that God has called me to do, all things that God has set before me to do 
not in my own strength, but in the strength of Christ, because he's the one who strengthens me. This is, I think, what contentment looks like. And so if we were to give a definition here of contentment, it would be something like an acceptance of God's plan by faith. What is contentment? Contentment is an acceptance of God's plan by faith. I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon, Thomas Watson. Thomas Watson has a wonderful uh, short book called The Art of Divine Contentment. It's thick. It's not thick in size. It's thick in terms of the, the, the sentences. They're, they're dense. But it's very worth spending your time in. And, and he has a number of uh, really wonderful quotations from that. Paul knows that he can only do these things through the strength of Christ. And let me read for you a, uh, a quote from Thomas Watson here. If contentment is an acceptance of God's plan by faith, then consider this. This is a little bit of a longer quote. Thomas Watson is talking about murmuring, which is complaining, and in the context he means by a discontentment. Murmuring is no better than mutiny in the heart. It is a rising up against God. When the sea is rough and unquiet, it casts forth, it casts forth nothing but foam. When the heart is discontented, it casts forth the foam of anger, impatience, and sometimes little better than blasphemy. Murmuring is nothing else but the scum which boils off from a discontented heart. Complaining Anger, impatience, blasphemy come from a discontented heart. A heart that is not ready and willing to be at God's disposal. And so this shows, I think, that contentment is rooted in faith. Contentment is rooted in faith. The author of Hebrews calls Christians to be content because God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This is in Hebrews chapter 13. I think that's striking. God calls, the author of Hebrews calls us to be content. He calls us to contentment. Why? Simply because God has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. This contentment, if you look at the context of Hebrews 13 and the passage that, that the um, author of Hebrews is quoting from in Psalm 118, I think we see that this contentment drives out or is opposed to covetousness and fear. Whether it's covetousness and fear of material things and circumstances or of other people. It is a content heart that enables a Christian to boldly say, The Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Think also of Psalm 23, verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall have no want, I shall have no need. On the other hand, that's, so that's what contentment is. It drives away covetousness. It drives away fear. It drives away the need to compare yourself to others because it's resting in God. It's resting in God's plan for you. On the other hand, discontentment brings covetousness, envy, fear, anxiety, and simply despair. Again, from Thomas Watson, discontent doth dislocate and unjoint the soul. When you are discontent, you know that. You know you are unjointed. You know that spiritually you are unable to do what God has set before you to do. Discontentment cripples. 
It cripples us. I'll give you another longer quotation from Watson. Discontent is a fretting humor which dries the brains, wastes the spirits, corrodes and eats out the comfort of life. Discontent makes a man that he doth not enjoy what he doth possess. A drop or two of vinegar will sour a whole glass of wine. Let a man have the affluence and confluence of worldly comforts. A drop or two of discontent will embitter and poison them all. It doesn't matter what you have. It doesn't matter where you are. If you don't have contentment, none of that will satisfy. And that's true when we're talking about material things. It's true when we're talking about relationships. It's true when we're talking about your aspirations and ambitions. If you do these things or pursue what God has in front of you or pursue the opportunities, pursue the relationships that you may have without contentment, it will all turn sour. Sometimes contentment is viewed as a stoic resignation to fate. I'm just going to take it as it comes. Perhaps it's a denial of the reality of hardship and pain. I'm going to be content such that I'm going to ignore the fact that this is hard, that what I'm going through is challenging, that it's a trial. But this kind of contentment, whether it's this, resi- this simple resignation, this kind of cold acceptance of fate, or this denial of reality, either of these kinds of contentment, however, are not godly contentment. This is because, as mentioned before, contentment really is rooted in faith. One more quotation from Watson here. And this is because there are hard things, a number of hard things, many, many hard things that we all go through. Long, drawn-out trials, short, momentary trials. And in all of them, we have the opportunity to be content or to murmur against God. And Watson, I think, draws a good distinction here that he's pulling from the, that, he's, that we can see from the Psalms. He says this, here is the difference between a holy complaint and a discontented complaint. In the one, we complain to God, that's the holy complaint, and the other, we complain of God, that's the discontented complaint. You read through the Psalms, we hear Paul crying out to God for mercy We hear Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane pleading with God to change his plan. Was Jesus unholy in the Garden of Gethsemane? Was he discontent? The difference is that Jesus and Paul and the psalmist are complaining to God. They're taking to him their trials. They're taking to him their circumstances and saying, Lord, deliver me from these things. This is holy complaint. This is holy discontentment. But there is unholy discontent as well, and that is when we complain not to God, but of God. We complain of what God has given to us. We complain of who God is toward us. And it's that sort of complaining that I think Watson identifies as mutiny in the heart. In 1 Timothy chapter 6, the second passage that we looked at, Paul ties contentment to godliness or to godly and pious living. Again, let me read that for you. 1 Timothy 6 verse 6. 
Now godliness with contentment is great gain. Godliness, in other words, living with God's grace and commands ever before us. You can think of the Lord's exhortation to his people in Deuteronomy 6. He's given them the Ten Commandments, and he says to them to let these commands be before them in their rising, in their laying down, in their walking, in their sitting, in their sleeping, in their waking. Teach these things to your children. Write them on the doorposts of your home. Let God's word, his commands, be ever before you because in them is life. So godliness, I would submit, is this sort of living, this sort of having God and his ways, his commands present before you at all times. Godliness is submitting then every aspect of our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. There's no part of your life, there's no little section of your heart or of your mind or of your job or of your day or of your relationships that does not belong to Jesus. It all belongs to him and sometimes we like to act like it doesn't. This part of my life, this part of what I'm listening to, this part of what I'm watching, this part of who I'm talking to and spending time with, these things don't actually belong to the Lord Jesus. But no, all of us, And every part of us belongs to him. We're to love him with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. And so Paul, what does he mean then when he ties this kind of living, this godliness, this godly piety with contentment? What does he mean by that? I think it's obvious to see that contentment really is part of godliness. Contentment, if contentment is an acceptance of God's plan by faith, well, then that fits right in, in line with godliness. But Paul here de, um, describes them or identifies them separately, but not entirely distinctly. And so look at this, for, or consider this for a moment. Let's take this phrase, godliness with contentment is great gain, and take one of the parts out. Consider what would contentment, apart from godliness, and thus apart from faith, be? What is contentment apart from godliness? Can you have contentment apart from godliness. This kind of contentment would be what I mentioned earlier, that stoic, cold resignation or a denial of reality. I'm able, there are people that are able to be quote-unquote content and just grin and bear it and just hustle through it, push through. I'm not going to stop and complain and be weak. But if it's not grounded in piety, if it's not grounded in godliness, if it's not grounded ultimately in faith, it's not real contentment. Paul implies, sorry, consider on the other hand, what would godliness without contentment be? Is there such a thing as godliness without contentment? Paul implies that without contentment, there is no gain to be had from godliness. Consider that. I think that if you take Paul's statement, godliness with contentment is great gain. What's the reverse of this? Godliness without contentment is not. There's there's not great gain to be had from godliness without contentment. Why? Some, Paul identifies earlier in chapter 6, some will use 
godliness or a form of godliness for their own material gain as a, as a means to satisfy their covetous and their self-righteous desires. This is why in this passage in 1 Timothy 6, Paul mentions money and the love of money a number of times. So some use godliness or a form of godliness in order to grow their wealth, in order to gain materially by it. But godliness without contentment is self-centered and it tends toward works righteousness. Right? If I am attempting to be godly in terms of keeping God's commands before me and following God's ways, trying to live, live like a Christian, but I'm doing that without contentment, what is that? If it's without contentment, I would submit then it's without faith. Contentment is rooted in faith. And if, and if you are going about living as a Christian without contentment, your works are empty. Because it's not trusting in God and trusting in his plan. Now, I say that, and at the same time, these are the kinds of things that we grow into. Of course, there are times where we need to, we know what we need to do, and I really don't want to do it. I know what I need to do, and I really don't want to do it. And there are times where we teach ourselves, do it anyways, trusting that God will bless it, trusting that God will give me that contentment. I might not feel that contentment, but when I go ahead and do it, and when I do it by faith, trusting that, that this is God's plan, it doesn't feel right, I don't feel content, I don't feel satisfied doing this, but I'm doing it by faith anyways, I think that actually is contentment. The feelings will come. But the contentment is there if, if contentment is trusting and accepting God's plan by faith. But godliness, again, without contentment, this sort of simple um, uh, obe obedience of God or obedience of God on the outside without a heart of obedience, without a heart of contentment, tends toward works righteousness. And it leads, I think, to further pride and anxiety and despair. It's empty. Paul specifies the love of money as the prime example of this sort of thing, but this is true of covetousness or discontent toward all sorts of things. Again, the other kinds of things that, that we've mentioned. Discontent in your circumstances, whatever they may be. Again, whether it's a long-term trial, not denying the reality of that hardship, or it's a short-term trial, a short-term bump in your home, are you responding in anger and pride or despair or anxiety that's demonstrating that there's not contentment in your heart? Godliness with contentment is great gain. It is great gain. Paul elsewhere exhorts us to exercise, he exhorts Timothy to exercise himself in godliness, to practice it, to walk in the works that God has set before us, Doing these things, exercising ourselves in godliness, walking in the works that he set before us by faith, not in our own strength, knowing that apart from Christ, we cannot accomplish it. But doing these things contentedly brings great satisfaction. And, and, it's, and it's this kind of um, heart posture that, again, I think characterizes so many of the saints that have gone before us and probably so many people that you can think of those people that go through trials 
not in a sort of um, fluffy, happy, ignoring the fact that they're real trials, but they go through them and they're steady and they continue to walk before in the works that God has set before them and they continue by faith. Proverbs 19.23 says, the fear of the Lord, which we could say the worship of the Lord or perhaps even the trust of the Lord leads to life. And he who has it will abide in satisfaction. It's the fear of the Lord that brings satisfaction. The proverb goes on, he will not be visited with evil. Now, we all know that there are real hardships, and there are real hardships for Christians. And there are real hardships for Christians, whether you're being a faithful Christian or not. There are real hardships. So what does this proverb teach us? What does this mean? Well, I think we also know as we take this with the rest of Scripture, we know that there is no evil, there is no circumstance, there is no relationship, there is no political situation that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And if that's true, and if we believe that, and we're fearing the Lord, then there's satisfaction in whatever circumstance we find ourselves in. Taking that again with the the truth that you can, in a holy way, complain to God of your circumstances, and you can take it to him. So we know this, Paul tells us in Romans 8, that there is nothing that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. And so rather, your good father is working all of these things, all of these hardships, all these trials, all these places where you feel a lack, where you feel a need, where you have a lack, where you have a need. God is working all of these things for the good of those who love him and have been called by him. And when we see this, when we trust this, we learn with Paul to be content in all things. And we see also that the reason for our discontent ultimately is not the circumstance itself or the lack of something. Our dis- the reason I'm discontent at any given time is not ultimately because of what's going on around me. That's not why I'm discontent. I'm not discontent because things aren't going well at work. I'm not discontent because things are hard at home. I'm not discontent because I'm not sure I'm going to make the monthly payments. I'm not discontent because I have all this wealth, but I really want more. I'm not discontent because I don't have the right kind of cereal in the morning. That's not why I'm discontent. At root, the reason I'm discontent is my view of God. Who do I think he is? Discontentment is at root a matter of unbelief. Either in the ability of God, the ability of God to provide, in the ability of God to deliver you, in the ability ability of God to sustain you when he doesn't deliver you, or unbelief in the goodness of God unbelief that he is good and that he is working all things, even that trial, for good for you as you love him. This, I think, is incidentally what we see, part of what we see in the Garden of Eden. Why does Eve take the fruit? Why does Adam follow her in the garden? Why why do they take the fruit? 
God had given them this glorious garden and told them to eat of all of the trees of the garden except one. And what does the serpent tempt Eve with? Did God really say that you should not eat of this tree? Well, if you eat of it, you know that it'll make you wise. You will be like God. The serpent tempted Eve by saying, is God really good? Does he really give you all you... I I think he's withholding from you, Eve. God's holding back. And Adam and Eve took the bait. This is discontentment. It's unbelief in the ability of God or unbelief in his goodness. To conclude all this, it's important also to see that contentment is a grace. And it only comes through the power of the Holy Spirit. You can't become content by doing better next time. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling. I, maybe you recognize, you realize, I, I struggle with discontentment. I am discontent. The way to solve that problem, and it is a problem, the way to solve that problem is not by buckling down, grinning and burying it, and I'm, I'm just, I'm not going to move next time. I'm not going to complain next time. And just working harder at it. That may come later on. There may be some application for that. But fundamentally, if you are discontent, it begins with confessing that sin. And saying, yes, Lord, I am discontent with the circumstances that you have brought. And it's sinful. And it's a lack of belief, lack of faith in your goodness and in your ability, in your power. Contentment, like so many other parts of our sanctification, is simply by the power of the Holy Spirit, foundationally by his power. Do you want to be satisfied? Do you have areas of your life where you know, I'm not satisfied? And you recognize, as we've looked at this, that it's an ungodly dissatisfaction. Where are you anxious? Where are you covetous? Where are you tempted to impatience and anger? Discontentment is at the root of that. Confess that to God. Turn to him with it. And then, again, like so many other parts of our sanctification, contentment is something to be practiced. Contentment is actually one of those works that God has set before you to walk in. It's it's something that goes along with those works, and it's a work that you are to walk in. It's both. It's something that is to be practiced. And this is the glorious uh, this, this is the glory of the salvation you have in Christ. This is, this is a wonderful part of your salvation. You can't live perfectly before God, but you are required to. And the grace of God is such that when you are discontent this afternoon, you can confess it and be done with it. And then tomorrow, when you're discontent again, because mom got the wrong kind of cereal, 
you can confess it and be done with it. And then on Tuesday, when you're discontent again, you're discontent at work or you're discontent and you're snapping at your wife or you're snapping at your husband or you're snapping at the kids because you're discontent with how God has brought things to you, stop, confess it, be done with it. If we confess our sins, John tells us, God is faithful. He is faithful to you. How do I know he's faithful to me? Well, he sent his son to die for you. He sent his son to die for you. And if he's willing to do that, he's willing to forgive every little sin that you've done because it's already been paid for. This is how we grow and walk and practice contentment, setting aside our feelings of impatience, anger, discontentment at, God's circum- at the circumstances that God has brought and instead preaching to ourselves the need to adopt a perspective and a posture of contentment when we don't feel like it. I don't feel like trusting in God in his circumstances. I don't feel like being content, and yet we need to preach ourselves the need to adopt this perspective and posture in that moment. When contentment is easy, and sometimes it is, we should rejoice in it, we should lean into it, we should give great thanks for it. When it doesn't come naturally, though, we should exhort ourselves and exhort one another to commit ourselves to contentment, to commit to it. Why? How can I commit to contentment? Well, contentment is the acceptance of God's plan by faith. Can you commit yourself to that? By the power of the Holy Spirit. Commit yourself to that deep trust in your good and heavenly, in your good and powerful heavenly Father. Stand fast in your faith in Christ as Lord and Savior. Through those long, long hard trials through those short, momentary, but really painful trials, through those short, momentary, and inconsequential trials. Adopt this posture, rely on, or put your trust in that good and heavenly Father. Pray for the, for the grace through the power of the Holy Spirit when you think you have reasons to be discontent. This is a learned and practiced virtue, as Paul indicates. That's what he says In Philippians chapter 4, I have learned in all things to be content. And so, we're not there yet. I submit that you're not there yet. I'm not there yet. There's much more to grow in in learning to be content in all things. But it's something that as a Christian, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you can learn. You can have satisfaction in everything that God brings before you. And this ultimately stems from believing in Jesus Christ. You can't have this. You can't have real satisfaction. You can't have contentment apart from faith in Jesus Christ. If you don't believe, if you don't really believe that Jesus died on the cross because you're a sinner and you needed a savior, if you don't believe that, you won't have satisfaction. And it doesn't matter how hard you try. And if you think you do, you're lying to yourself and to everybody around you. You can't have contentment apart from faith in Jesus Christ. It only comes from him. It stems from believing in him and believing that he is the good shepherd with whom you have no want. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. 
He who comes to me shall never hunger, and he who believes in me shall never thirst. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.